Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Big Tent Live Events. We hope you've enjoyed the summer insofar as there's been a summer, and we hope and we are delighted to continue our live event online series brought to you by Torch, the Oxford Research Centre for the Humanities, as part of the Humanities Cultural Programme, itself one of the founding stones for the future Stephen A. Schwartzman Centre for the Humanities, a centre here in Oxford which will have public engagement with research and with performance, dance, music, theatre, cinema at its core. My name is Wes Williams and I'm a professor of French literature at the University of Oxford, a fellow of St Edmund Hall, and I'm also, officially as of next week, the director of Torch. This term's Big Tent live event series will bring together each week researchers and students, performers and practitioners from across the different humanities disciplines. Our aim here, as regular viewers will know, is to explore together important subjects and to ask challenging questions about areas such as the environment, medical humanities, ethics and AI, the public and the private and the common good. <clears throat> and we'll celebrate storytelling and music, performance and poetry, identity and community. If you would like to put any questions to our speakers during the event tonight, please pop them in the comments box on YouTube. We encourage you to submit these as early as possible, and I can then ensure that they inform and enrich the Q&A part of our discussion in about half an hour or so. Now, onto our excellent speakers tonight. I can't tell you how excited and honored I am to host and welcome, joining us for the first event of this term's online series, Katie Mitchell and Ben Wishaw. I'm going to embarrass them both by saying a few words of introduction before we start our conversation. <clears throat> I'll start with Katie Mitchell, whose unique style, rigorous and some say uncompromising method have established her powerful reputation as both a maker and a thinker, as someone engaged in an ongoing innovative exploration of the possibilities of live performance. Her work is well known to audiences across the globe. In a career spanning 30 years, she has directed over 100 productions, including text-based theatre, opera, installations and multimedia work. From her early days as an assistant director with Payne's Plough and the RSC, to her recent success with La Maladie de la Mort, created at the Théâtre des Bouches du Nord in Paris, and Orlando at Berlin's Schaubühne, Mitchell has become renowned for bold and innovative productions, which make rich use of multimedia in live, and as we should say now, locked down performance as well. Working with ancient classical texts, as well as achingly contemporary writers and themes, Katie has collaborated with the Royal Opera House, the National Theatre, the RSC, the Royal Court, as well as theatres across Europe, and indeed the US, to produce work which provokes and inspires in equal measure. Her many awards include the Evening Standard Best Director Award, the British Academy's President's Medal. In 2009, she was presented with the Order of the British Empire, an OBE, for her services to theatre. She read English at Magdalen College, and we might reflect on whether that was or was not good training for her life and work in the theatre. She's also enjoyed a fruitful relationship with the university over the years, including a stint as a visiting chair in opera studies in 2016-17. And I'm thrilled to say that today's conversation marks the beginning of her time here as the first ever visiting fellow in theatre in our humanities cultural programme. Welcome, Katie, again. Thank you. I'm also delighted to welcome Ben Wishall this evening. A multi-award winning actor in film, television and theatre, Ben trained at RADA and his work quickly brought acclaim, including a much lauded Hamlet at the Old Vic with Trevor Nunn way back, it seems to me, in 2004. 
He has worked with or been directed by, and we might come back to that, Katie Mitchell, multiple times, including The Seagull at the National Theatre in 2006, and recently Norma Jean Baker of Troy at The Shed in New York, I think just last year. In television, his work ranges from a BAFTA-winning performances in Richard II as part of the amazing Hollow Crown for the BBC in 2012, to his extraordinary and multi-award-winning portrayal of Norman Scott in A Very English Scandal in 2018. Among many film roles, from Bright Star, where he gave an exquisite account of Keats by way of Ariel, both there and not there, in Julie Taymor's Tempest, and Paddington, delighting audiences young and old as the voice of the refugee bear in the hit movies 2014 and 17, all the way then from Hamlet to Q in all those Bond films since 2012 Skyfall. Welcome, Ben, and thank you for taking time out from what I know is a hectic schedule today. Oh, my pleasure. Lovely to be here. Katie and Ben, you've generously agreed to discuss your work across and between different media, and I think we agreed it might be useful to have as a focus for our collective thinking this question that's sort of obsessing all of us at the moment, which is live performance. The many ways in which liveness can take, well, the many forms liveness can take on film, on stage, on Zoom, and so on. But before we get into kind of nitty gritty stuff, I thought it might be useful just to have you know, uh, in a sense, from the horse's mouth, if you like, um, how you got to be working in the ways that you are now. How did you come to theatre? How did you come to directing, Katie? How did you come to acting? In a sense, how does one get to be Katie Mitchell? How does one get to be Ben Wishaw in terms of the performance lives that you've led? Um, Katie, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, when I was a, a young person, I really wanted to be a visual artist. So my dream was to be a painter. And um, I don't think I had a very good teacher. And uh, so I was made to feel that because I couldn't represent a tree beautifully or do a, a sort of line drawing of a, of a nude beautifully, that I, I didn't have the right to be in, inside the visual arts field. So I sort of moved sideways into theatre as a sort of second best and then found that very sort of addictive and uh, uh, yeah, very, very interesting form. And uh, then the big influences on me after the move from visual arts to theatre were always work from abroad. So I didn't really feel any connection with any of the work that was happening in the UK as a young woman in the 80s, 1980s. So most of my influences uh, came from a very big trip I made to Eastern Europe, to Russia, Georgia, Lithuania and Poland, where I researched uh, directors training and saw amazing practitioners and learned a lot about Stanislavski and also seeing work that was coming into the UK from abroad. Anyway, I then did about 15 years of working on naturalism in mainstream text-based theater, but I always wanted to go back to uh, a more sort of visual arts influence, making work that was to do with the, cr the crossover between theater and other mediums. And so I then had my a breakthrough show um, going into live cinema, which then set off what I would consider my real career. That's me. Over to you, Ben. <laughs> um, I um, got taken to a, an audition for a youth theatre when I was 13 by my dad. And it was a youth theatre in a town just down the road from the village I grew up in. And I was quite a shy 
13 year old and I think my dad must have thought it would do me good and I liked acting I'd done acting at school but I had never explored it further than that anyway so I went to um, this audition and I got into this youth theatre and it changed my life in a way and we did extraordinary things there um, we did Greek plays and we did adaptations of books and we did uh, devised pieces and anyway I guess uh, it became the thing I loved most and uh, then I decided it's what I wanted to do and then I went to uh, RADA when I was 19 and um, and then I guess to I was just extremely lucky and um, <laughs> <laughs> and I got I got some I got some nice work and one thing led to another and then you meet wonderful people and um, I've and wonderful people like Katie who you I've been fortunate enough to sort of build um you know you keep working with over time yeah. so um, well that's what's happened for me that's really thank you both I've, I'm I'm really interested um, Ben in your saying that youth theatre was a way into this for you and, yeah. and the list of things that you mentioned so kind of ancient texts but adaptations of things devising stuff mm. things to me that there's so well you don't always get a chance to do that as a professional actor because you're too busy working with ready-made scripts or working on ready-made stuff is that uh, is that a shame for you do you think that um you would like to do that kind of devising, making, adapting work again? Or once one's become an actor, does one just do the one thing? Um, no, I would like to. And I feel like I have had um, experiences that have felt close to what I experienced as a teenager at the youth theatre, with Katie, actually, and some other people. Um, no, I, I've enjoyed... Um, I've enjoyed sometimes having experiences where a text is just the beginning mm -hmm. of, of, a, of a process and um, a launch pad. Um, and then it's something that's made kind of collectively, not as much as I would like, but it, that, um, but I've, I've tasted it and I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. Katie, coming back to you, in your, what you say, your, your, as it were, real career, post-live cinema, I mean, that's about adaptation, remaking, reworking, as much as it is about just staging a ready-made text, isn't it? Or am I over-interpreting? Yes, I think it, it is, because of course the first live cinema show I did was uh, Virginia Woolf's The Waves. Yep. And in fact, my wish to do that stemmed back to my time at Oxford where I did a special paper on Virginia Woolf. Um, so I would say there's something gorgeous about being free a little bit of, the, um, of a play text and having the problem, if you like, of a novel. And in that case, the problem of a novel with no dialogue and no narrative, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, then collaborating in a different way with performers and one's creative team to push the boundaries of what the form of live performance can be. Mm -hmm. I mean, that doesn't mean I didn't really relish many of the journeys I took with various play texts. You know, our, our journey on the seagull, Ben, was really, you know, fantastic. I just think it's sort of just, that going through the threshold into different types of material creates different types of working processes and relationships. Mm 
um, and different form outcomes, mm -hmm. which I find more exciting probably than the well-made play text. Mm -hmm. But maybe that also is just a natural weariness having done something for 15 years or sort of mm -hmm. a curiosity about new forms and departures. Yeah. Do you have to get into a different sort of head and heart and body space to work on a text like the seagull? In other words, that's that sort of already exists, that's been around for a long time, that a lot of people have their own versions of and so on, than say something that's never been made before. Does it matter to either of you really that, that, that this is something that has a kind of a performance history or a collective history about it? Um, do you feel responsible uh, in a sense for that performance history or that collective history? Or do you think, no, this is an encounter between me or us and the group of people and putting on this, this story uh, here and now? Sorry, that was a bit of a long question. But <laughs> gorgeous question. Ben, Ben, you go. Um, I, I, I would try not to think, from an actor's perspective, I would try not to think about the performance history. Um, of course, you can't be completely ignorant of it, but I wouldn't go and watch, not that that would be necessarily possible in theatre, but I wouldn't want to have my, you know, go back and watch other actors' interpretations or read about them or anything. Um, I wouldn't find that helpful. Um, and you want to sort of come to it in yourself at this point in time, um, bringing yourself to it. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, no, I try, I try not to think too much, but try and treat it like people say, like it's a brand new thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, but also I'm always aware, particularly with um, plays that um, are older texts, um, that the director is probably going to be bringing in choices and um, well, hopefully. Um, <laughs> and um, so you've opened to that as well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but Kate, Katie, I suspect for you, you might be more aware and that might, it might direct you more strongly about where you want to take the production having been aware of the history of the play. Yes, I think I think as a director compared to the actor, I think you have to be mindful of the production history. And particularly when you're dealing with Chekhov, because the it, with that particular writer and those particular plays, the production history has sort of got tangled up with the original material. So it it, that production history, which really was sort of late 60s, early 70s, Royal Shakespeare Company way of staging it mm -hmm. as very slow, contemplative pieces of, of drama, um, that has been mistaken for the actual original Russian radical material. Mm -hmm. So when you're sort of trying to work out how to conceive and stage uh, a play like The Seagull, you're already being forced into a conversation with the production history and the material and you've got to somehow cut your way through both yeah. um and i think that that was i remember in the preparing of the seagull that was quite a challenge to work out how to present it in a way that tried to cut away the barnacles if you like of, of yeah. all the production history and just get back to that sharp very avant-garde uh shock of a symbolist play 
And I think we we really tried, didn't we, Ben? And when when I brought that idea to rehearsals, we really tried to um, work with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were thoroughly told off. No, you were thoroughly trounced <laughs> by various people <laughs> for doing off. that. Yeah, yeah. For, yeah. for that attempt. It was very interesting. We, uh, we made it, didn't we, in, at the National Theatre in London. I then went a couple of years later to Copenhagen yeah. and repeated exactly the same production. And it was seen in a completely different way as a sort of necessary uh, relief that, you know, some part of the um, radicalism of the original material had been repositioned culturally. Um, But but such is the sort of difference of making different plays in different countries. I I come off the point. So in response to your answer, yes, the production history in the case of such a major writer is quite significant in terms of how the director approaches and conceives the material, but hopefully not in a way that burdens the actor. That's more just the director alone cutting through the jungle of it. Yeah. And Ben, presumably that's true for the Shakespeare work that you've done, say, I mean, presumably, I don't know, you don't go and look at other people's versions of Hamlet before you do your Hamlet or other people's versions of Ariel before you do your Ariel. You, in a sense, leave that job to the director in a way so that you can work your own particular craft. Is that, is that, am I, is that right? I, I would choose to. I know other actors who like to know um, how it's been done before mm-hmm. so that you <laughs> can do something different with it or something right. like that. Yeah. But yeah. I just think, oh, I don't know. I would rather just kind of, yeah, as I said, so to come to it as, my, as myself and yeah. how it speaks to me. Yeah. Um, at, at that moment in time. But don't you think that, Ben, there's a different way that how the director looks uh, at a play and how the actor looks at a play are quite different. I was reflecting on this recently with my students and I was saying it's like, if you imagine as the director looking at a play text, it's like looking at a house with lots of entry points or doorways. One's marked Hamlet, the other's marked Ophelia, then it's Polonius. Yeah. So, and as a director, you've got to walk through all of the doors of all of the characters and then work yeah, out course. how they all fit together. Mm-hmm. And that, that's quite a burdensome and complex task, whereas the actor has a, has a burdensome and concept t- complex task, but different, they just go through one door. Mm-hmm. And that's they just rigidly just stay Hamlet, door, corridor, mm-hmm. and they stay in that one. I wonder whether what that's- What are responsible for, in a way? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I, do, oh, I do think you are responsible for the whole play. But, or at least, I don't know. I think you have to be aware of the production you're in. And I think this is something that I've enjoyed about working with you, Katie, is that, and it's rare, but that an actor in your production, in one of your productions, knows the kind of production he's in and the world he's in. And, um, it's not going to be a production where every single actor's slightly in another <laughs> in another production, which I've seen. I think everybody has seen a lot of when there's this jarring thing going on where no one's quite on the same page, mm-hmm. and I love that. So that and that is to do with being aware of uh, having an overview of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right in that basically you have to be completely. Um, immersed and absorbed in the way your character is mm. uh, seeing things. But but, the, but but how we build character using the Stanislavski technique means that we construct characters for all, biographies for all of the characters and all of those biographies have are woven together. 
So you couldn't play Hamlet without knowing um, when you first met Ophelia and the actress playing Ophelia couldn't be playing it without knowing when she had first met you. And all of those sort of biographies are woven together. And I think that creates a, a real sense of sort of shared past. And yeah. from that comes a sense of shared focus, doesn't it? Which is really useful. Good old Stanislavski. Okay, you've got ahead of me. I was going to ask you about Stanislavski, but I was going to get there through the Russians, but we can get there through Hamlet as well, if you like. No, go I through mean, the Russians. Well, no, only because... Okay, so, um, we've talked about the seagull. I, um, a little bird told me, uh, Ben, that you're very interested in Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Um, and in ways in which one might sort of... Uh, transform that into something like a performance piece mm. so here's a kind of test for you both how would you start doing that from a kind of Stanislavski perspective what would you because doesn't does the novel tell you everything you need to know in terms of all the relationships you've just been talking about Katie you know who who meets who when and so on or do you have to sort of write out even further from the novel basically how do you transform the idiot into a show with the help of Stanislavski well, a big thing that would, uh, this is another thing I really love, and I don't mean to sound like I'm just sort of <laughs> praising Katie endlessly, but there, it's, it's unusual for an actor to have this kind of experience. So what was brilliant about Katie's process is that it's very clear, you begin the same, it wouldn't matter what the source material was, you begin everything the same, and it would begin with questions really, Katie, wouldn't it? Like, you establish the facts, you'd go through the thing, and write that, you'd go through the text, and you'd write down the things that you can certainly know about the characters and the world. And so, that's where it sort of all begins, you, you get, you collate as much information uh, as possible and then uh, and then you see where the gaps are right. and um and what happens is a sort of filling out of a backstory isn't it katie which becomes a really um completely addictive sort of process for, for, for me and for most actors i'd say who work with you you're muted katie somehow you've muted yourself Okay. It's because my lovely daughter just came in and I didn't want the sound of her <laughs> shoes in the background. Forgive me, forgive me. Uh, yes, it, it's, it's, it's a classic actually Stanislavski technique where you just go through a text and you look for all the facts about the past, not the present. You're not doing the present analysis. You're looking for the past. And then anything that you, you can't really understand, you ask as a question. Um, so if, if we take um, uh, the seagull, I don't really know the idiot well enough. Do you know the idiot well enough to talk about that? We take the seagull or maybe Hamlet, we take the Hamlet, you know, when did Ophelia first meet Hamlet and where and what happened? That may be a question that you ask. Okay. Um, and then you, you try to answer it as simply as you possibly can, cross-referencing the text and looking for the simplest impression the text gives you of the answer. And then you answer it. And then masses of questions like that. And then masses of facts. And then at the end of that, you've got a list of facts and all your answered questions, all about the past. And then you just assiduously put them in chronological order. And, and all the time you're building the past in order to play the present. It's, it's not, it's, it just helps you play all the present action, the building of the past biography. It's not a diversion and it, or it's not a sop to the actor. Um, so it's to help them play the present. 
So it's a very, it's a very particular rigorous technique, which is one of many steps that um, Stan has. And then after you've built the past, you build the place, and then you build the immediate circumstances, which was what's just happened 24 hours before the scene. And then you analyze the present action using tools called events and intentions, which are very familiar to lots and lots of people, very classic Russian tools. Where are the main changes in the scene? And in between the changes, what are all characters playing to each other? So it's very, very simple and gorgeous system, but it, it's very detailed. And the thing about working with Ben, I mean, he's just incredible. He's very, very, very detailed as a performer, which means that he's not only works very closely on a very detailed analysis of where all the changes, both micro and macro are in the text, but he can also calibrate all of the psychological shifts of those intentions around those changes in a way that's just so refined and nuanced. And he likes doing it. So a lot of people get a bit tired. They think, oh God, I'm playing, I've got a play text. I've got 400 events and you know, 400 intentions. That's really, that's really dull. I, I want to play something simpler, but Ben, he's the opposite. He goes, I think we missed an event here, Katie. Can we add 401? And then every single inch of what he's doing on stage in terms of playing, he needs to be precise about. And that, that leads to a sort of density and complexity in terms of the psychology, uh, which is sort of quite, it's breath, a breathtaking level of skill, which very few um, performers can achieve. It's breathtaking. Just gotta say it then, sorry. No, no, I agree. I think we can't Let's just have, this is the Ben loves Katie. I think there's an element <laughs> in which it goes in the other direction too. And I think I can see why. And I just, I kind of more seriously, I wonder, Ben, do you carry that sort of stuff over into film and TV work? So for, I'm, I'm thinking of the Norman, uh, you know, the, the, the um, very British, um, I've forgotten the title now, but, um, you know, that was a character where I, it struck me that you were doing incredibly detailed work um, as part of that character, rather than just sort of being. Um, no, I, I do, I do, I do apply it. Um, it's impossible to apply it in the same way and to the same degree, because, mm -hmm. Well, one, in the case of a very English scandal, it was made for telly, there's not the time yeah. to do that kind of um, detailed work, either beforehand or during the process. But, um, but yeah, I do apply it. And um, I always think, I always make a biography now. Right. Um, and I always work out the facts of the past and I will always fill in and I'll always work out, I'll always work out my intentions and events, mm -hmm. even if on the day, you know, um, the whole thing turns to, out to be nothing like what you'd imagined and <laughs> you can't really use it. You've mm -hmm. got it there as, um, yeah. Yeah. you've got it there in your back pocket kind of thing. Okay, we've in a sense already answered the question, can you teach this stuff? Um, insofar as you've, you've both said, well, Stanislavski's method is one way of learning this stuff at least. Um, neither of you have claimed that it's the only way, um, but you clearly both find it really, really useful um, as a way of kind of, uh, in a sense, measuring and, and, and understanding the craft to use your, Book title, Katie, The Craft of It All. Um, just to kind of put the 
put the um, put an end to this little bit of the conversation. It seems to me that both of you seem to think of your work as craft, as as made things. You know, like I don't know, a goldsmith or a silversmith, or you know, you're, you're making stuff in an extraordinary detail that is beautiful. I is that fair? Well, I think that's that's one thing that I really love sorry again about this process of working and because it does sort of demystify things yeah. because you, you um and there is a lovely feeling of like well you because otherwise there are a million ways you could try to approach a text or anything and if you've got if you've got these it's a toolkit and it is a sort of like you can make it you can apply it every time and sometimes you don't need to and sometimes other things will happen and there's room, there's space for, there's space for other things to blow in, but you're not going to have that crisis of like, fuck, I don't know um, who I am, what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, and would yeah. you say the same, Katie? For Yeah, I, I think, I think it's, it's enormously uh, important and useful to have a sense of, I think there's something about it, maybe the, the most useful thing is a sense of, uh, for the time that we're all together making a show, everyone agrees to one way of working. Because mm. as you say, Wes, there are so many different ways. And, and as, as you say, we don't claim that this is absolute. I think this is very tried and tested, let's say, because if you think that I learned it from someone called Lev Dodin, who studied with someone called Tovstonogov, uh, who studied with Stanislavski. It's it's close to transmission. And then so many people have used these tools so that all of the weaknesses of the tools have been sort of ejected over time. So they're really well-made tools mm -hmm. and they're, they're enormously useful for directors and actors. Mm -hmm. And I think the demystifying is really important. Yeah. Just, just going into the director's other tasks that they have to do, not just working with performers, you know, my mission would, would definitely to nail the skills, both hard and soft skills, so that the, the process of directing is demystified in order that anyone can do it. Because there is still a little bit of sort of zhuzh and mystery around yeah, the yeah. craft of directing, yeah. um, which can put a lot of people off. And it is a field dominated by one diversity group um, yep. who don't understand themselves as a diversity group. Yep. Um, and uh, so I think it's the more you can demystify uh, the processes and nail the skills, the better for access to the field, basically. And uh, bringing a lot of people, even like, you know, Ben describes himself going to that youth theatre, you know, yeah. there he is, given the tools and off he goes. I mean, that's, yeah. that's so important, you know. Yeah. 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 Can we talk about a different set of tools for a moment? And that's the tools that have had to be developed. Well, you were already doing that. You've already worked with them, both of you. So Katie in terms of live cinema and Ben in terms of cinema, TV and so on. Um, but obviously in the last six months to a year, the tools of that we're working with now, the tools of the screen, of the camera, of live, of something called live performance that is also not actually where people aren't present. Um, do you have thoughts on the difficulties of, of, of live performance now and the kind of is this digital performance offer an exciting possibility or is it always going to be a a kind of second grade um version of the, the the sort of what you might call the holy grail of being there in the room with the somebody i mean of, of course it's it's different but we can't make anything live at the moment 
And, and that is going to be for a long period of time. And as we all know, more pandemics will come in the future. So we have to have other systems. Um, and so we have to sort of, for my mind, to, to, to relinquish the holy grail of the live experience and accept and welcome in different versions, like this experience now of us communicating via Zoom. We have to welcome in those versions because we still have the existential needs that live performance was fulfilling. It was dealing with all the complex parts of what it is to be human, mm -hmm. you know, and we still have those needs and we still need the narratives and we still need the sort of reflections back on, on our behavior and experience and perceptions. Mm -hmm. So we are gonna have to find other ways of creating, which are, are not us all being together in the same live space, but through different digital platforms. And um, I, I was already uh, investigating that actually before the pandemic hit, uh, part of sort of an interest that I have in, in trying to reduce our carbon footprint, particularly when we're making big international touring products. And so I was working with a choreographer called Jerome Bell at a Swiss theater uh, in, in Lausanne called Vidi. And we were working up a way of making a show where there was no travel which would mean there would be Jerome in Paris and me in London rehearsing via Zoom local performers in Lausanne. And then when it tours, no one moved, basically. New local performers in the next city would work with um, either me and Jerome via Zoom or a new local director with a performance score. And there'd be literally zero movement and travel of either people or um, elements. So already I was beginning to think, you know, as, as time passes and the environmental catastrophe sort of c c c crashes onto us, mm -hmm. we, we need new systems mm -hmm. uh, for working. So, so for me, I think it's a really, it's an awful time, full stop for everyone. But there, there are uh, some advantages in it, in, in terms of our sector, you know, I think it make us sort of come up with new forms of, uh, of working and communicating and just, I think you have to relinquish the holy grail of the live thing. I mean, as you know, I've already done so much live cinema that I'm not right. so... Yeah, you know, I mean, liveness is, it. liveness is a moot question in your recent work anyway, and uh, where, you know, what am I watching? Is this live? Is this in the same time as that? And all the rest of it's been explored anyway in what you do. So I can see why for you this does, you know, acknowledging all the horribleness of it, nonetheless represent a kind of artistic um challenge and opportunity i wonder for ben again do you do you grasp this as as a kind of possible utopian even future or do you just think damn it i want to be on in the room with people i want to be in the room where it happened as hamilton um, <laughs> i um to be completely honest i have felt so sort of um knocked for six by it all in the, I haven't, I'm still getting my head around everything. I mean, I'm really inspired to hear what you're saying, Katie, actually, but I, I mean, I haven't even really felt like doing any, I mean, it's, it's fortunate because there is no work to do, but I haven't felt like doing any work. I've been really, and I feel sort of guilty to admit that because so many people are having to work so hard, but I have enjoyed, I have to confess, sort of like, um, having a fallow period. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel I'm still in that time. So I, I, I feel like I can't really answer anything. I'm very curious to know, because I think Kate, Kate is absolutely right. This isn't going to 
obviously change anytime very soon. So we're going to have to adapt. And I think so maybe I could put a question to you that's come from the audience. I mean, we've already started actually thinking about some of the audience questions, but um, if so, if a project came to you, Ben, which was working on a live streamed play, would that interest you? Or would you think, no, I need to be, again, I need to have the audience directly there with me? No, it would interest me if the people, I was, yeah. if the project was good and the people were interesting, yeah. Okay, so if Katie comes along and says, right, we need to do something that's digital now. Yeah. Well, we've just been having that conversation, okay. but just, just in our green room before we were already opening up that conversation. <laughs> but the thing is, it's not about having a, a challenge and an opportunity, it's a necessity. And I think that this really was struck to me, struck home to me when very early on during lockdown, a friend of mine had been part of a conversation going on apparently in Manchester about a new building, a new performance building that was opening. And the architect had been sent back to the drawing board to make the building work socially distanced. Mm -hmm. And I think that was in, it must've been March, someone mentioned this to me and I thought, oh my God. That was just so serious for me. So it was that, it's a real turning point. I thought it, it's long term. We're looking at the long term, not the short term. And then, of course, one's, uh, I've always got formal intellectual curiosity. Mm -hmm. How is it possible mm -hmm. to make this experience that we have normally together when we're separate? Mm -hmm. What can that, you know, what can that be? Mm -hmm. And that it is intellectually interesting. Okay, so again, you've answered one of the questions, which did you have you used quarantine time to progress as an artist? In what way? Um, oh my God. Well, I used quarantine time. I, I thought, what should I do with my time as show after show went down? And uh, I, I've had a, a lot of fantastic use of my time, actually. I've spent most of my time teaching young people, actually, in many, many different countries, um, teaching mainly directing, but sometimes acting in the UK. Germany, France, Italy. Um, I'm going to be teaching people in Norway, Copenhagen, Milan, lots and lots of different groups. So it's given me access to, to the younger generation in a way that I've not had for a long time. And I really, really relished that. And, and I've taken a huge amount from that, including my MA students yep. um, at Royal Holloway. Um, so I've done that, but also been able to build up projects which are, are looking at a different, a blend of digital and theatre. So we're doing a show for the Shabuna, uh, working with the British writer Chris Bush, where we produce 10 short films um, digitally and where we introduce all of these characters and they go out in the spring of next year. And then in the autumn, you see all of those characters five years before meeting and having a dinner party. So it's just so exciting to blend those. And then obviously working on the Zero Travel project, Mm -hmm. um, I've spent a lot, a lot of time with scientists talking about the environment and also with the wonderful British scientist, actually, Chris Rapley, mm -hmm. just drilling down again into um, what's happening and how we can make pieces of theatre about that subject without emptying the theatres because it's not a very um, happy subject. Mm. So I, I've been busier than normal. Yeah. You and know, ben, you've been busy. Yeah, that's very exciting. And I mean, Again, we've talked a bit about this, but some of those projects we will probably help develop or be maybe She's involved right. in for the next little while whilst you're uh, visiting fellow. Ben, you talked about being fallow. I find that a really interesting 
kind of metaphor because of course it's also a, an environmental metaphor you know land has to be fallow for mm. a while for, for the ground to be then fertile at some other point so i don't think you need to i'm not your therapist but i don't think you need to feel bad about well the fallow fallow time. Time. The therapist but, told me it was all right <laughs> but it's also true you've been filming and i wonder if i think you've been filming it is filming different now to what it's normally like in other words do you have to do you all have to be in bubbles and do you have to work separately or i did one day finishing okay. off something that i had not quite finished in march okay so i couldn't really say but it was weird because you meet a whole bunch of people and all you can see is this yeah um and um but you know, well, it will get used to that, um, it, and it will find creative ways around it. Um, I know we strange, will. Strange, aren't they, Ben? When they happen, I remember having a Zoom call with a, at La Colline in Paris, and in the Zoom call, they're all in masks because they'd suddenly put an edict out that you had to wear masks in the office, and that was just really weird. Yeah, it's just just seeing, just seeing <clears throat> people's eyes is. Mm. It's going to be a, anyway, it's very strange. Okay, so here's a technical question then, which somebody's just sent in, which I think is really interesting to both of you or either of you. Do you think that the difference between the technical skills required for stage and screen action will become blurred in this kind of Zoom world? Precisely because of face, you know, um, TV skills involve this as much as anything else. Um, and you've been working with that in the live cinema stuff. Will this, this new, domain in which we're operating mean that the, the skills about yeah technical skills for actors um will become blurred or maybe you don't think you're doing something different anyway ben when you're acting on stage or on film oh i think ben may not agree with that ben do you think it's different on stage and on yes it's hugely different isn't it okay yeah, yeah i so do Okay, yeah. so this live stream show that you're going to do, are you going to be a screen actor or a stage actor while you're doing it? It's a really good. It's a really good question because I do see what you mean. Of, it's it is live. <laughs> There's one go at it. You can't go back. Can't call cut. Yeah. Sorry, Siri's saying hello to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love the sort of tectonic thing about our private lives and our public lives are sort of like. <laughs> crunch together don't they because of yep. the zoom situation at home but yeah. ben saying yes um but so it, it is it would be it's going to be a really interesting sort of mashup of the two and something else because acting i would i can imagine like this on a zoom call isn't like acting for a camera either so it's it's not really it's a completely new thing I think it's a new, I think new thing is the way of looking at it. And I think it's, we've probably got to train for it and think about it and reflect on how to do it really well. Cause I think it's probably quite complicated to do acting on Zoom. My students had to do a, uh, uh, my last year students, their final project because of the pandemic had to go on to Zoom. And you could see them investigating all of the challenges of it. It's really hard. And sometimes you can see the actors crunching their way through it, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's difficult, I think. Mm. I'm, I'm cheekily want to ask whether Stanislavski is going to help you with that. And I can see actually it probably will, of course, because it's the same work. It's about how to be present in the moment, um, uh, as you say. Well, well, the thing that I think that's really exciting about it, if we think that there's about 200 muscles on the face mm -hmm. and the muscles are the things that articulate a lot of the inner feeling or emotions. Mm -hmm. So it, it, 
there is a there's a sense in which everyone's going to get the director's view of the acting e.g very close you know so the privilege of being a director is you sit super close to the acting yep, yep. You really see the detail of it yeah that's part of my original wish to bring cameras into theatre is so that everyone sees that detail a and b the actor doesn't have to amplify it a bit for the people who are sitting 10 seats back so i think there's something really gorgeous about the detail of zoom mm -hmm. don't you think and when one could really i mean this is a prelude to our project isn't it ben whatever it is um mm -hmm. uh, you can really really work on that detail but also there's something about the Zoom is always putting people in their private spaces. Mm. And I think there's something really interesting about it's that. It's a good point. Yeah. Really, really interesting. You know, I, I've been teaching all this time. I've got a 14 year old teenager behind me, always aware of that. And it's mm -hmm. lovely to have her so close. Mm -hmm. But it sort of, it definitely modulates my behavior in a completely different way. Yeah. I wonder also, again, in response to one of the questions that comes through, um, going back to the diversity point that you made earlier about directors being largely from, uh, you know, white and male. You didn't say that, but that's what you meant, I think. Um, is this new mode going to democratise representation in a way, um, bring more people into the space of performance? Because, you know, we've all got this kit. Or haven't we all got this kit? I mean... Yeah, we all have this kit. I think, I think it, uh, I hope it does. But I hope also that that happens in the live performance when we come back to it before we go away from it again. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think, yes, definitely. I, th I think it could be a lovely interim platform for sort of people to be free to take charge of theatre <laughs> for us. <laughs> Our time is past, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. and, and reimagine it. Yeah, so I think, yes, I think okay. to that. Ben, do you have thoughts on that? I just completely agree. And I think, you know, it's the thing of um, that you hear people talking about of wanting things to go back to how they were. Yeah. But I don't, I don't. No, nor me. Do that. And I, I, I um, and I think a lot of people don't. So it is a time to really think about where we want it to go and what new work we might make and the kinds of stories and how we tell those stories and, Who's telling the stories? You know, it's all very exciting, really. It could all, it's all up for grabs, I, I hope. I, I've got no interest in going back. Let's, we must go forward. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Yeah. And, and there are lots of really exciting new ideas, like localism, for example, which I find really, really interesting. So What's as that all about, like, Katie? Hmm? What's that, what's that been about? It's, 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 as I understand it, and I'm only just coming to it, is the idea that basically you you start to function locally within your immediate community. So mm -hmm. I, I was reflecting as, as I was cycling through uh, my local park and I just, there was a young group of people doing Shakespeare in the park. I thought maybe that's what I'll end up doing. I'll just be directing shows in my local park. Mm. And that's <laughs> actually quite a nice thought actually. Yeah. As opposed to traveling across the world with an awful carbon footprint. Although I am not flying, I'm on the wretched trains, but... Yeah. So look, it's basically, as I understand, whereas you'll know more about it, it's a movement for for our, putting our energies into making environmental change or artistic contributions locally, yep. as opposed yep. to thinking and working globally. And yep. that's really exciting. I mean, in a way, it goes back to 
the youth theatre moment that you started with, Ben. In mm-hmm. other words, um, you know, the shows uh, happening kind of in your community, with your community locally, and being made in some sense for the community or with yeah. with the community. I mean, of course, we uh, other kinds of theatre are still going to go on and carry on, um, as will other kinds of uh, TV and filmmaking. But um, and local is interesting because I've just had a little note saying here that countries represented in the audience at the moment, Japan, Belgium, UK, China, Philippines, US, Singapore, Spain, Italy, Hong Kong. So local will mean lots of different things in yeah. all the various different places in terms of the people who are online watching us now. And I suppose that that's, again, another question that's come through here, which is, as well as sort of potentially democratizing things, um, What's clear, you touched on this earlier, Katie, is that this sort of new digital space um, is kind of both somewhere and everywhere at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if we can just reflect on that for a few minutes, the sort of uh, the local, but also the global, the relation to either in terms of the project that you were talking about, Katie, so a kind of a, a transferable project from one place to another, or, you know, you've done a lot of work in Germany. Um, I hope you don't mind my saying your German is not amazing. Um, in other words, you've nonetheless managed to transfer and you've worked in Russia and you know, you, so you've transferred a kind of a way of being into something that's not rooted in a particular language or in a particular culture. So does that mean that the, the global is, is there or is each time do we need to be local wherever we are? I, I really don't know, but what I do know is that we have to stop flying and we have to stop consuming carbon like this. And therefore that means we cannot have this international cultural travel. Mm -hmm. The products can't travel like they're traveling and the productions can't be made like they've been made. With the the highest cost for an international production is transport and accommodation, but particularly transport. So I think it's just a great moment. And it's fantastic to hear the number of countries people are from in yep. our age. So this is like positive globalization where, you know, we, we all can meet across a lot of countries on Zoom and talk about different things that I think we can do locally. Mm-hmm. And we can share ideas across this, you know, this digital platform, but not necessarily have to travel anymore. Mm-hmm because the environmental catastrophe, which the pandemic is a sign of, mm-hmm. isn't separate from, mm-hmm. is a real elephant in the room. Yep, yep. So that, all, all those models are redundant. They've got to be changed. We've got to have new systems. And, and I think it's very exciting, the idea that I could be directing a show in an entirely different country and not go there and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I think I think these are very exciting possibilities. Mm-hmm. Is what that, you, ben? Yeah. I, I, to be honest, I've been such a hermit for the last six months. This is the first time I've. I mean, I've done some Zoom calls with my family and things, but um, this is the first time. These these are questions that I'm just starting to think about, mm-hmm. um, and I feel actually very inspired just by hearing you talk about them. Um, so, mm, I'm open. To... I'm imagining it's much, much harder for a performer to embrace this than for a director. Um, because you're, I don't know, but you're kind of 
stock in trade, what you work with is a kind of presence, is being there in some way. So I can't see how you would say it would get quite as excited as Katie about not being somewhere. Um. Well, I agree with Katie that we have to get used to not being somewhere. Okay. We do have to, you know, we're going to have to really change okay. um, our behaviour. So I'm, I'm all up for embracing what, what, what the change needs to be. But yes, but I think that something they will learn about, because yeah, you do think, well, how can I act with somebody on a, <laughs> over my computer? And how, how do you have, um, what about physicality and presence and yeah, yeah. everything else that's so important to. Um, okay, let's do a thought experiment then on this one, just to finish off, because we're coming up to five two, so we've got about five more minutes. Um, I've, sort of one of the questions that somebody's asked um well there's two more questions left let's take them but the thought experiment is could so the, the ideas that we've just been discussing in the last five ten minutes um how would they have made the show that you did at the shed last year different so that to, to, if you could if some one of you could just say a sentence or two about what the show was um and um i mean i can introduce it if it was Dan Carson's uh, doing a Greek tragedy uh, based on Helen's Euripides and modernizing it by imagining that Helen was uh, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Crudely speaking. Um, and performed by an, me, an actor, and um, Rene Fleming. <laughs> um, so um, it was a very peculiar. Um, set of ingredients, I think it's fair to say, Katie. Um, but it would, it, it, I, I think it's such an interesting question because it would have worked brilliantly, I think. Yeah. In a, in a way. It could, it could have been really good on a digital platform. And I do have to say that I didn't even go to the US. It's true. I don't fly on principle. Mm -hmm. So it, it was too. already inside a new model and we, we rehearsed it therefore locally in the UK. Mm -hmm. So it was very, it already had some, some ass elements of this, didn't it? But I think it would work really well on a digital platform, would you say? Definitely. Ben? And also because it was not, it, it, it had no, it wasn't a play, it wasn't an opera, it wasn't a poetry reading, it was not, you couldn't define it. So it was already in its own strange space, wasn't it? Yes. So it, yeah, it was already both. Sorry, go on. Sorry, well, it was already both ancient Euripides and very modern and Carson. Yeah. It was already male and female. I mean, there was all sorts of binaries that were being, if you like, deconstructed True. live on stage. Now you guys are saying, yeah, and we could do that on on Zoom or at least in a digital on a digital platform. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it would have worked. I mean, we'd have to rethink a few things, but you could totally perform the text and Rene could um, perform the score and it would work mm. with um, on on a Zoom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It'd be completely possible, wouldn't it, Katie? Yeah, it would be, and quite exciting, yeah. maybe. Yeah, quite exciting. Problem there. Yeah. Okay, maybe we've hatched an idea here. But um, <laughs> but but lastly, but you did that in the shed, yeah, in this new space in New York. Um, yeah. And I guess that comes to to a kind of uh, a final point, which is. Um, uh, so somebody said, how can you grow new talent and new spaces for this new performance mode? Um, and in a way, the shed was already invented for that. So the shed 
you know, I've not been there because, yeah, not because I, in principle, don't fly, but because I've been in the States for a while yet. But you made the show, or the show was made for that space, I think, at least partly, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, yeah. So um, can you talk us a bit uh, through a bit about how you make a show for a particular space? Um, what the process of commissioning is? How does a show get made like that? Um, the problem is I'd really like to answer that question, but the space was being built. So we didn't actually know the space. Ah, and actually okay. when, when, when Ben and, and the team and my associate who, who represented me over there, Lily McLeish, went over, it was a building site, literally, and they had to oh, wear wow. hard hats to rehearse. So in a way, it was such a, a strange, exceptional experience in relationship to a building actually coming up around you as you're trying to tech. How, mm -hmm. how is it on the ground, Ben? It's, it's hard to take it as a model, but how is it for you? Ben? Well, it was hilarious because we all got sent home one day because the space was unsafe to be in. <laughs> still building it so it was just it was, it was being built around us while we were rehearsing the final bit of rehearsal in in there but that's very exciting no it was exciting it was it was fun and funny and exciting and a bit scary the mm. projects come together in a whole variety of different ways don't they i mean sometimes a, an organization will say do you want to direct this or do you want to act this mm -hmm. um uh, and sometimes you go to an organisation, you say, I'd like to direct this, or maybe you go to someone and say, I'd like to act this. Yep. Um, but in this case, it had the weirdest evolution, didn't it? Because Ben rang me. You, you explain it, Ben, the evolution of this project. You were in New York with Rene and Anne. <laughs> this, this is very odd. Yes, um, yes, I was in New York with Rene and Anne and Alex Poots who is the artistic director of The Shed. Mm -hmm. And Anne had written this text and asked if I would like to perform it. I really love Anne and she, we'd worked on something else together. Alex Poots had decided it needed another element other than just an actor and said he knew Rene Fleming. Maybe there was some kind of chorus because it was a Greek, built from a Greek text. Anne said, yeah, it could have a, a singer. So Rene came on board, but then we had nothing else. We had no, <laughs> no way of transforming this um, text into a performance and mm -hmm. no one in the room had a clue how to do it. <laughs> and, That's when you well, phone a friend. I know Katie Mitchell, she <laughs> does opera and she does Greek, <laughs> Greek plays, I'll ring her. And I did. Hmm. And then that's, yeah, and that's how it happened. So that's a very weird. That was that's a very, very, very unusual uh, procedure. Well, that's a shame because it seems to me a perfect procedure. In that, you know, performer loves a text, loves a writer's work, needs to then go and find some way of that operating, uh, making that happen, remembers having worked with somebody else who's kind of got the tools, off we go. I mean, I suppose what's lucky about that is that you also had the producer on board or... or uh the yeah i would yeah. say in retrospect it was a little bit the wrong all the wrong way round. to oh. be honest it felt but but anyway maybe i shouldn't we're running out of time and maybe it's too much to go yeah, no, i'm just interested I'm, I'm, to, i'll tell you why i'm interested partly because precisely this is partly me thinking from our perspective in torch and in relation to the new yeah. humanity center and so on how do we bring together academic work research into performance into the history of performance into greek into you know the history of theater 
with artists and how do you generate that work in what will be a new space you know that is going to be a built space um as well as a digital space and you know, how, do, how does that work happen um and clearly there are lots of different ways um mm. but whether it leads with the poet whether it leads with the director whether it leads with the um performer and so on what's what's the thing that makes that actually feasible it's, a, it's a, an idea connection, isn't it, between uh, either a, a group of artists or artists and academics. Mm -hmm. And it's a very fragile, tiny thing. So, mm -hmm. so someone has a hunch that some idea would be possible in the same way that Ben had this hunch. He had this hunch yeah. that you could, with a fantastic opera singer like Rennie Fleming, fantastic actor like himself and Carson's text, if you could just get that fourth person there, then yeah. all of those ingredients would co coalesce um, but, yep. but I think I think the seeds of things are quite fragile mm -hmm. and you can often miss them. Mm -hmm. There's a seed of an idea coming, they just just you just don't notice it. So providing a sort of environment like you are, Wes, and providing context like this for these sorts of conversations mm -hmm. can, can often uh, breed things. Yeah, we're back to fallow. You need some fallow ground to plant the seed and then you need the the water the resources and all the rest of it to make the seed grow i guess but yeah okay we're running out of time um have we forgotten anything is there anything you really want to think about um that we haven't said um i don't think so i think we've i really 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 enjoyed this and i think we've yeah, it was that. lovely um, really interesting actually thank you so much well thank you i think it's yeah we've sort of just about run out of time thank you um to both of you are brilliant speakers for a wonderful and really actually I think enriching um, conversation. Um, I have to say thank you also to the viewers at home who sent in their questions. I say home, there's all sorts of homes represented here in a, in a whole range of different places. Um, and also thank you to the backstage crew, um, the people at Torch who've, who've made all this possible. Um, but of course the biggest thanks go to our two speakers. Um, thank you again. Ben, and thank you also, Katie. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Our next Big Tent live event will take place in two weeks' time. Um, on Thursday, the 8th of October at 5pm, we will be live from an Oxford venue um, with a world premiere performance from the Villiers Quartet. We'll also be speaking with Professor Dan Grimley from the Music Faculty, who will introduce and explain the significance of the performance, and Dr. Joanna Bullivant, also from the music faculty, who will be chairing the evening. We hope you'll be able to join us again then, and if you want to catch up on any of the other previous events on Big Tent, they're all on the uh, Torch website. Thank you so much again for joining us, um, one and all, and hope to see you in a couple of weeks' time. Goodbye. <laughs>